Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and here with me today is the president and CEO of Edgeville Personal hey, Care. Priya. Hi, Ron. Okay? How are you today? How about you? Good. Kind of dealing with this massive fog. You know, I don't know if you're feeling it where you are, but New York is just covered in a blanket. Yeah, I'm out in Connecticut. We are too. My my son said he was tired this morning on the way to school, and I said, "Well, look outside." I think everyone feels tired today. Absolutely. We're all tired, a little dragging today, but I'm so excited to be here with you today, Rod. You know, I've heard so much about you and you were doing some incredible things at Edgewell. But I have to ask, Rod, you know, I know that you were in the Air Force and you and you worked there for quite a while after um, after you graduated from the academy, but how did you find yourself in beauty and personal care? Yeah, it is a long journey um, from the Air Force to, to beauty, but... Um, I um, I left the Air Force in, uh, in 1997, and at the time um, had the good fortune to end up at Procter and Gamble, who I compete with today in my main categories. They're they're a competitor, uh, but I I chose to go to Procter and Gamble, and I was in finance uh, there at Procter and Gamble and worked my way through in what is a great company. Uh, you know, Procter is a great company. They they treat you well. They train you well. Um, and they've got a broad portfolio. And uh, I, I lived in Geneva, Switzerland for the last five years uh, of my time with the company. And the last seven years with the company, I was in Procter's beauty division. So I found my way there via the, the normal path you take at P&G, where you grow, you learn, develop. They give you new opportunities to go do things, whether geographically or in a different business unit. And so I, I found myself living in Switzerland, working in the beauty division, which I just loved. Did you have a personal connection, I would say, back then when you think about it? You know, I know you were working on Wella and some of the salon businesses back then, but did you realize how wrapped the, the beauty consumer was prior to, you know, to this role? Not necessarily, but but I'll tell you, I um, in, in my time with, with Procter, I... I worked on parts of the portfolio um, in the early days, femcare, the baby care business. Those businesses were higher cost of goods and lower marketing and advertising budgets. Um, And as I compared that to what was going on in the beauty division, I looked from from afar looking in, I thought, they seem to have more fun. Um, Because... The, the cost of goods are lower on average in beauty. And the way you're selling beauty is you're, it, it's a business of ideas. I once was told early on in my days by, by a mentor that, that I valued um, that beauty is a business of ideas. It's all about ideas and creativity and creativity wins. And so that sparked to me um, in, in terms of there was more, more freedom in beauty to be creative to have ideas. And I, I, by my nature, am not the most creative, artistic person in the world. But when I'm around people that are creative, that are artistic, um, I recognize it, I value it, and I actually enjoy being around that. So for me, it was a bit of a natural progression to, to being in business units that were more focused on creativity and ideation as opposed to creating a great technical product. Is that what kind of led you to Elizabeth Arden? Because at that time, you know, that was really a kind of turnaround operation between 2016 and 2019. Is that right? Yeah, it, it was. I So I left P&G in 2014 and went to Elizabeth Arden at that point. 
Um, I didn't want to compete with P&G. It was important to me not to be competitive with my former um, employer, which we, we can talk about what I'm doing today because that's not the case. But at the time, P&G didn't really view Arden as a competitor, even though P&G played in beauty, Elizabeth Arden played in beauty. There were very few products that were head-to-head in terms of, of the market set. Arden was a lot of fragrances and some skincare. And, and so as I went to Elizabeth Arden, it was that beauty connection that was interesting to me to continue. But Elizabeth Arden was in deep turnaround mode. Um, not a lot was working. Um, the sales were declining. Margins were declining. The brands were not healthy. And so we needed to reinvest in the business. And all the things I had learned at Procter & Gamble were very relevant and could be applied almost from day one to Elizabeth Arden in terms of driving a turnaround and transformation of the business. And so it was equally the opportunity of being in the beauty space, which I told you was interesting to me, but also the ability to have a meaningful impact to turn around a business that was struggling. It it was that joint challenge of working in a space I loved and having the challenge of, could I actually be part of a team that could turn around the business and be successful? And you guys did. We did, actually. Um, it, was, it was a super fun time for me because it was very different than Procter & Gamble where everything worked. Um, you know, the, the teams were well-staffed. People um, had similar views of, of what the world looked like, what the rule set was, what's right, what's wrong. And Elizabeth Arden was a little different than that. And, in a, in a, and not all in a negative way. It was just a little more eclectic, a little more diverse in terms of and how people thought about how business should be run. Um, but it was a really good group of people that I worked with. And uh, we got very clear on what we needed to do to turn the brands around. We tightened up our distribution of, of prestige brands that were too widely distributed. We got really clear on the pricing rules and we tightened up our pricing rules. And we invested in new brand campaigns. We invested in meaningful innovation into the, the innovation roadmaps and the new products we were launching. And, and lo and behold, we started to have success. And that led you know, one success after another. And, and I wake up one day with uh, you know, Ronald Perlman and, and McAndrews and Forbes, who owned Revlon at the time, bringing a 70% all cash offer, 70% premium to where we were trading in the market, all cash offer to the board. And it was one of those things where the board couldn't refuse the offer. And so ultimately we sold the business at a 70% premium versus where we're trading in market. And that doesn't happen today. It doesn't seem like it at least. No, it's, it's not often that that happens. And so um, again, it was a testament to a lot of good work by a lot of people who had, had transformed a business and, and got its mojo back. You know, you stepped away from beauty for just a a hot minute, you know, at HSN, but then here we are again, you've been at Edgewell now for a little bit over four years at this point, you know, what was attractive about this business when you, when you arrived, because you were also in a similar role of chief financial officer. Yeah, correct. I was, I was a chief financial officer at Elizabeth Arden when I left. I was the chief financial officer at, at HSN Inc., HSNI, um, Retailer, which I thought was really interesting for me just from a learning and development experience to be on the retail side um, at a company that didn't have a lot of brick and mortar, right? It was, it, was a, it was a nice way to get into retail without 
all of the, the things that were bad about retail at that time, which was, you know, bad balance sheets and lots of brick and mortar exposure. Um, but when I, when I left, and by the way, we sold that business for uh, not, not quite the same premium, um, which led to me leaving. I, I, I loved the business and the team there as well, but it created an opportunity for me to, to, to leave. When Edgewell called, I didn't know the name Edgewell. And this was, uh, this was late in 2017. And the, the recruiter said, I, th- I thought you'd been in this personal care business and the beauty business for a while. I was like, how do you not know Edgewell? I'm, so, I'm sorry, I don't know. And I was pulling up, uh, I looked it up on Google, Edgewell, and it popped up. I'm like, ah, the Energizer brands. So Schick, Banana Boat, Hawaiian Tropic, Playtex, great brands. Brands I knew, uh, but there were two problems with it. Uh, one is um, the headquarters was in St. Louis, and uh, the CEO lived in St. Louis. The, the, the prior CFO lived in St. Louis. Um, I live in New Canaan, Connecticut. I love it here, my family here. My kids live in New York City, uh, my two older girls. And, and this is now home for us, and I didn't want to move. Um, I didn't want to commute it either. Um, and, and so that, that was a problem. The second problem was um, the business, the, the two, two of the primary categories, shaving and femcare, go head-to-head against Procter & Gamble. And as I told you before, I wasn't looking to compete against my old company. They've been good to me, um, and I respect them, and they're also very good in these two categories. And so my view was, I don't know that this is for me. But the more I looked at the opportunity and started to talking to them ab- about the opportunity, very similar to Elizabeth Arden, they were open for change, the board was. And they were looking for someone to come in and help lead the transformation of the business in a way where the brand, it's a great brand set that we have here at Edgewell that we had at the time and I think we've only made better. Um, And so the brands were good. All the brands were there, the bones, the structure was there to be successful and the board was open for change. And so as I started to reflect a bit more and the fact that the, the power base of the company is actually in Connecticut. It's just up the road from where I live in Shelton, Connecticut. The, the St. Louis piece was an old Energizer holdover because Energizer was headquartered there. And I'm in a new company. Edgewell separated from Energizer in 2015. The name Edgewell was born in 2015. So there's a reason I didn't know it. So it took, it took me a little time to work through the opportunity. But when it was all laid out for me, I, I, I decided I, I, could, I could take the leap and compete against my former employer and that we had what we needed here to be successful. And it was up to us to be successful. And it seems like the plan has been working because, you know, your two key categories, as you said, you know, shaving and, and feminine care, you know, you're, you've always been leaders in those categories. It just seems like you guys are gradually, gradually nipping more at their heels when you think about, um, you know, the competition between Edgewell and Procter & Gamble. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I would say, you know, we've, we've, always been very capable and competent in shaving and in femcare. Um, right now, we're the number two player in shaving and we're the number two player in femcare, specifically in tampons. And we've moved from the three player to the two player. We've moved up a rank in femcare and we're a very strong number two in shaving. It's very important, I think, in, in consumer categories to be one or two the number one or two brand or player in the market. 
if you get below that, sometimes it's tough to win. Either you're lacking scale or relevance, or you know retailers can only carry so many brands in physical brick and mortar. Um, it, it can be hard to overcome one or two. So we're making good progress in both businesses. When I joined, both of the shaving and fem care businesses were declining mid single digits. You know, down five, six, seven percent year on year. We were losing in that moment. The year we just finished, um, we're growing both of the businesses low to mid single digits. But the big transformation we've made in the company beyond having success in those two core businesses is we have a sun and skincare business that's been on fire, is growing. We have the number one sun care brand in the U.S. now, Banana Boat. Prior year was Neutrogena. Historically, Neutrogena and Copper Tone would compete. Banana Boat's almost 2x Copper Tone today. Um, Hawaiian Tropic is, is a brand that, that's been on fire as well. So our sun care business has been very strong. We're the number one sun care manufacturer in the U.S. with the number one brand. We're the number one player in hand hygiene, wet ones. It's synonymous with hand wipes, wet ones. That, that's what people call the category, much like Kleenex in, in the, the facial tissue category. And so we have the leading brand there and another, another business that, that's been very strong for us. And then the final piece of the portfolio that's largely new because we've, we've improved our portfolio. We've gone out and acqu- acquired three brands in the men's grooming space. Bulldog, Jack Black, and Cremo. Growth category, growing double digits. Men care about their skincare routine and regimens and grooming themselves. And uh, we now participate in that category as the leader in the men's grooming category with those three brands. And then the final uh, piece of the portfolio, we acquired the Billy business, the Billy shaving business, uh, just about one year ago, and that brand's on fire. You know, it's, it's been the leading women's brand on direct-to-consumer. It's only four years old. It's a new brand that's just been constructed and developed and just resonating with consumers, and we're now in the process of taking that to full retail brick and mortar. Um, so all of those things lead to what is a growing business, a winning business, and, and quite a different profile than we had four or five years ago. Now, you started at Edgewell as CFO as well, and then you transitioned to president and CEO. You know, with this new purview, were your eyes, you know, opened in a different way? Meaning that, you know, when you were talking about scale and distribution, you know, Schick is everywhere. You know, Playtex is everywhere. It didn't seem like the problems or uh, the reasons why the brands were declining maybe a few years ago was because of those reasons. Maybe it was much more marketing or connectivity to consumers. What, what were your thoughts there? Yeah, so you're, you're right. I started as the CFO. I was the CFO for the first year I was here, um, March 2018 to 2019. Then in 2019, moved into the CEO chair. Um, one of the things I saw, though, even when I was, was the CFO the first year I was here and, and part of my assessment to come to the company um, was the issue we had when I came to the company and my assessment was not that we didn't have great products. Our products are efficacious. Our product performance is as good as anyone in the category in shaving, for example, or when a, when a, when a woman chooses one of our femcare brands, it's safe, it's tested, and it's always going to work. And, and it's, it's, it's never going to do bad things to you. And so we can match anyone on those, on those pieces. Where we had a gap, 
was connecting with consumers and being consumer-centric. We had gotten into a, a rhythm of being too technology-focused, and we had been being led by technology as opposed to being led by the consumer. What do you want, Priya? What do you care about? What do people in your family want? What's important to them? Is there a pain point you have? Is there a problem you have that a product can help you with? You know, our lens was on technology and not enough on the consumer pain point or the consumer opportunity. So job one was get refocused in all of our research, all of our upstream innovation work to be laser focused on the consumer and less so on technology. That's so interesting because it seems like in so many ways, it's a marketing issue versus, you know, a, a true financial problem that you may have had at Elizabeth Arden. Did you feel that maybe that was maybe a little bit easier than if maybe the balance sheet was totally screwed up and you had a lot of debt or, you know, is that an easier um, transition for you as CEO? Yeah, it's actually more difficult. In my view, uh, fixing a financial issue is easier to do than fixing a growth issue. And I think this is true everywhere in the world. I think there are many people that can run things well financially, run things efficiently, run a very nice tight process, um, and, and make good choices out of strong financial discipline and, and an orientation, which I feel like we actually have at Edgewell. Um, we had it before I came here, and I think you know the, the team here is very, very good at that, that part of it. The more difficult thing to do is to get a consumer to choose your brand and your product versus everything else they can choose from. That's very difficult, particularly in an environment where you've got legacy players like P&G, Unilever, who are scaled and been at this for a long time and can access top talent and have budgets to train them very well. And you've got disruptors new to the category in a historical period of this time we're talking, in the, in the late you know, 2019s to early 2000s, in what was a very cheap capital environment, i.e. you could create growth, borrow money very cheaply or access money cheaply, and you didn't have to turn a profit. We were dealing with those people, the disruptors, new coming in. And so our brands were not scaled like a proctor, were not fast, agile, cool, like a startup, a Billy, for example, we're in the middle of that. And so we, as we looked at that and said, how do we win with our legacy brand set and become relevant again to consumers versus that problem statement of those two types of competitors that we're competing against? And we, we woke up one day and said, we need to be just like the disruptors. So we just declared that's what we need to be like. And so then you start to focus on the consumer. You start to focus on the messaging, the marketing, what you're putting into the innovation pipeline, even the value statements you say you have as a brand. Because ultimately, particularly the millennial set, they're looking to buy brands that line up with their values as much as what that brand or product will do for them in their bathroom or in their, in their kitchen. And so we had to work on all of that in a way that a disruptor would. The good news for us is we have disruptors on the team. The Bulldog founders, Simon and Rodri, um, stayed with us for three years. We're still working with them on what's next. The Cremo founder, not the Cremo CEO, not the founder, but he's, he was there from early stage, Matt Biggins, 
runs our grooming portfolio, Jason and Georgie from Billy. They're with us. They're working on more than just Billy. And so I have the advantage. I've got disruptors now on my team that we've acquired. And I've got teammates who are on legacy brands who in many cases are new, young, hungry, have a learning orientation and want to change. And so we've gotten at this marketing thing that was tough to solve, but in a way where we're now winning market share. And that's the, that's the ultimate test to me is, can you engineer financially and, and get through a tough period? That, that can be done you know, mathematically, but can you grow market share and win versus competition? That's much more difficult to do. Modernization seems to be such a key focus of Edgewell. You know, just like the brands that you just mentioned, Billy, Primo, you know, the Bulldog founders, like these are young guns changing beauty and personal care. Was that something that you set out when you first joined that said, you know, acquisition is going to be a key part of the company's growth? It is. We, we had a portfolio that, that, in my view, was not set up for success. We had too much exposure to categories that were either flat or declining. And so we, we had uh, an infant care business, Diaper Genie. Um, interesting product, actually a helpful product, but not a growing category. And there was nothing unique in there that was proprietary. So we sold that business. We had a Playtex gloves business we sold. We had an industrial blades business we sold. So we sold things that weren't core in the categories where we wanted to play and thought we could ultimately be successful and were declining. Equally at the same time, we've done four acquisitions in the last five years, all in categories that have been growing double digits. So we've taken what was a portfolio that was oriented to flat and declining categories, now up against categories that are largely growing, and in some cases growing double digits. And so it's easier to have success and grow when you have a portfolio that's oriented towards categories that are growing. So getting the portfolio right and going after acquisitions in this grooming sun skin space and more startup disruptor space was very intentional. When you think about, you know, the portfolio, you know, one thing that really strikes me is obviously you still have your core shaving and feminine care businesses, but grooming has been especially challenging for other conglomerates. You know, there's one brand and it's an afterthought at XYZ Beauty Company. And they don't seem to they don't seem to connect or maximize the potential there. Like what's happening there and is it really driving what I think it is according to your results this last quarter? Yeah, it, it it's a great question. And again, I I've been at other companies that um, have acquired things have acquired businesses and brands and done it poorly. And I've had a front row seat to seeing it done poorly. Um, I've been acquired twice, right? So from my perspective, I've been acquired twice. And I've had very different experiences as the company and the person being acquired. And so my own personal experience has led me to a place where if you're going to acquire a company or a business, the people that are running that business are as important, if not more important, than the brand you're acquiring. Most people don't actually go down the path of trying to start with the people are the most important thing they're acquiring. Typically, it's the brand, it's an asset, it's a capability. But if you start with the people are the most important thing in that acquisition, 
you're going to treat them differently. You're going to speak to them differently. You're actually going to work to maintain what they've built and they believe is special and bring that forward in a way that, again, just for whatever reason, um, historically, um, bigger scaled companies, when they're buying small things, they have good intent, but the bigger company antibodies take over and they just slowly start to eat away at the things that are special in the smaller brand. And the, the smaller brand can never compete for leadership mind space or resource allocation over time. And so over time, you start to have um, less resource allocation going to that brand that was new in year one, but in year two and three, maybe the company gives up on. And you see that from time to time. We're to size and scale, where everything we buy is strategically important. It's in a growth category. I'm gonna personally be involved. I'm gonna ask my leadership team to be personally involved. And we're gonna to work to retain the people and hang on to the people. And ideally, have them grow and develop and take on more within our company. Now, sometimes that doesn't happen, right? There's, they just wanna do startup disruptor work and they don't wanna work in a bigger scaled company. But we're trying to create the, the nice middle ground of we're operating more like a startup and disruptor. You can have that experience here and you can also have some of the safety net here. If you fail, you, know, you still have, a, you still have um, a base salary that we're paying you. you know, you're not just playing for the payday and the payout three to four years down the road. So um, you know, as we've done this, I think part of our success is just being good to the people that have come with the brands. And, and again, the brands have always been strategically important to us. And these four acquisitions, not one of them is outside of the strategic priority zone. You know, what's interesting that you just said there, Rod, is just that, you know, founders don't stay at many of your competitors. You know, they're there for a year, they're there for two years. It seems like that obviously is the focus of, of what your founders are doing now. But, you know, I have to bring up, of course, you know, the Harry's deal. Like that was that was structured in a way that they would be able to influence many of the different business units, which I don't think that founders get many places. Would you say that's true? Do you think it's a unique quality of what Edgewell does? Yeah, I, I do think it's unique to have founders stay. As many times, um, and maybe founders won't stay forever, right? There may just be a period of time where they're working to make sure that the, the, the brand they've built and is special to them is successful. And they probably feel like they can, you know, if they stay for a couple of years, help that be successful and then they move on to what's next. It's, I'm not naive to believe that, that founders that do that, you know, that's what they want to do, not, not work in a, a, a bigger company and, and deal with bureaucracy and all that, that goes with it. They're trying to avoid that. That's why they're, they're founding something, right? Um, but... Um, you know, in the Harry's case, I was out recruiting a new head of North America at the time. And so to, to your point, um, the, the plan was for Andy and Jeff to co-head and run North America for the totality of the portfolio for the Harry's business and the Edgewell business. So a key tenant of, of the Harry's transaction we were trying to get done at the time was to retain the talent and, and bring two founders into a business that were going to be key leaders in the business and, and run the, the primary geography. Does that deal and what happened there still surprise you? Um, you know, I'm, I'm surprised by the FTC ruling. Um, 
we were we were blocked by an FTC in a Trump administration with three Republicans in the commission. And you know, you need uh, you need at least the three two vote to get cleared by the FTC. We didn't get cleared, and so I, I'm surprised. In given the backdrop of when we were trying to get the deal done, that that we were blocked, I am surprised by that. Um, but at the same time, um, in many ways, things happen for a reason. And I didn't waste the second from the time we were blocked into getting on with running this company and, and building it ultimately to win and be successful. And so we were going to buy some things in that transaction, some leadership, talent, some capability, some digital nativeness, um, some growth-oriented brands that had, you know, nice, nice growth trajectories to them back to improving the portfolio. Um, but since that time, I've built a more digitally-oriented company. At that time, 3% of our sales, 3 sold via e-commerce. Today, it's 13. You know, we've gone nearly 4x, uh, a little over 4x in terms of our penetration into e-commerce. Um, my market shares in the online channel are higher than they are in brick and mortar. So we're winning disproportionately online, like something that would have been unthinkable five, six years ago. Um, and because we didn't have to deploy capital and pay the premium we were going to pay for Harry's, we since bought Cremo, we since bought Billy, we've initiated a dividend, we're buying back stock, our leverage levels are really low, and my employee engagement scores are up almost 20 points versus three and a half, four years ago. So the team's fired up. And so we've come through this period, COVID in the background and all of it, in a way that back to where I started, things happen for a reason. And we seized the opportunity to go down a different path. And I think we like where we are. Talk to me a little bit about what other kind of acquisitions or categories you're interested in. Because obviously you have these four segments. Are you interested in building those up more? Or are you thinking about other categories, you know, traditional skincare or makeup or cosmetics, hair? Yeah, it's it's right in that zone, Priya, where we're, where we're looking. Um, I, I think our, our grooming portfolio is pretty solid. Our shave portfolio, it, we like. And so the real opportunity for us, again, back to this lens of what can we uniquely be good at and what, what has growth potential? Those are the two, two things we look at in tandem. We're really, really good at sun care formulation. We're the only sun care manufacturer in the United States today. We're the leader, I told you. We're the only ones that own our own supply chain and manufacture our products in-house. Everyone else is relying on third-party um, arrangements. We control that partly because we think it's efficient and we're good at it, but also because we control quality, regulatory, formulation, end-to-end in a very tight way. That doesn't leave our system. That's important. I think it'll be more important over time beyond sun care into skin care. And so sun and skin is, is the area of focus for us. And when you start to go back to, um, you know, some of my background in beauty, what you focus on in beauty, we've been winning in sun care and thinking about our portfolio and this broader sun, skin, 
even potentially cosmetics, and, and you look at where some of the trends are, um, in, in a lens of more beautification. And how do we look at our portfolio and when? And it, there's, a, there's an opportunity to operate more like a beauty player from a personal care um, you know, starting point. I've got a beauty background. I've got um, people on my team from the Jack Black team. It's interesting. Jack Black's a men's skincare brand. It's like an all-female team that has built and created that brand. They have built and we've launched um, in-house a new brand, Field Trip. Um, it's a gender-neutral skincare line. It's awesome. Um, we just are, are launching that now. Um, we're we're going to launch a new everyday clean sun care brand internally um, that we're doing. The Billy team that we've acquired, they have people on that team that have backgrounds from Glossier, L'Oreal, Lauder, around formulation expertise, around product development. And so this idea of, of bringing beauty concepts, beauty ideas, beauty capabilities into personal care, there's a really neat intersection when you start to talk about sun and skin care. But again, there's growth in those categories, and we think we can uniquely be good in that space of the specialty skin sun care area. Would you say that incubation is just as important as M&A? Are you still more focused on the latter? It, it's, it's a mix. I would say for us, M&A is a very high bar, uh, particularly in this environment um, where there's some uncertainty about the future. And so we, um, you know, we're always open to M&A as a way to accelerate and build our business. That's what we've traditionally done. I think in the moment we're in, incubation is, is a little more interesting. Whether we incubate and build our own brands, which I've talked about, you know, two that we're, we're working on right now to do ourselves organically, or if we partner um, with, with other people that are incubating, you know, early stage startup brands that would traditionally be funded with venture capital, there's alternative models for us to come in and have a role and potentially play a role of a VC shop. We on our own wouldn't do that. There's efficient partners and ways that, that, that we can do that with other people. But incubation, the point you're making, given where we are in our evolution, where we like our portfolio, we feel like we're better at branding and marketing. We have unique skills and capabilities to be successful in some of these categories. We should be incubating and building new brands and bringing them to market. If we're not, someone else will. Talk to me a little bit about what you just said a second ago. I mean, obviously, you're a numbers guy, Rod. So about the current environment, because a lot of people are very nervous about both about buying and selling brands, but also just about reduced consumer spending. You know, some of the brands that you have in your portfolio are a bit more premium and are not necessarily like as necessary as a razor. Um, so how are you feeling and how do you think that's going to carry through to the end of the year? There's, there's two aspects to that. Our portfolio, our business, I actually feel quite good about. Most of our portfolio is in a value to mid-tier price point range. Um, roughly a third of our shaving business, we haven't talked about this to this point, is private label, non-branded. We're the biggest private label manufacturer of, of razors and blades in the world. Um, and, and we've got a big exposure there. So as 
consumers start to struggle in terms of, of making ends meet with all the inflation we're seeing, I do expect to see an impact um, in spend in our categories. Um, again, we're in everyday use categories, so not a lot of this is discretionary. What's discretionary is maybe time between use, how much you use, or how much you pay to participate in the category. We benefit more than some others with our portfolio being more mid-tier value-oriented and having this private label component. So there's a little bit of a hedge in our portfolio. But there's no doubt, Priya, the consumer is going to be hit here in the next couple of quarters. We've seen record inflation coming at us. Um, Corporates have seen uh, the strong dollar really impact earnings profiles. And so when you start to look at rolling all of that through, what does it mean for the consumer? They've been resilient to this point, but I think we're kind of at the end of that. And if we have continued inflation, um, continued expensive money, like we've had with the rate raises, and some of this geopolitical stuff around us with what's happening in, in Russia and, and Putin going off the rails and thinking about you know what could happen in Asia, there's just lots of unsettled things out there that, that are on people's mind. And that weighs on confidence. It weighs on, you know, clarity of making a decision. And ultimately, as people become more conservative, you spend less, you save for a rainy day, you, you make choices that maybe you weren't making a year ago. That has to lead to only one place. And in my mind, it, it probably leads to less consumption and less spending by the consumer. Are you thinking about that in terms of holiday and promos and discounting? Are you veering or trying to veer away from that? No, I think, you know, holiday is is an interesting part of our business. Again, in everyday use, we we do have some brands that that are are, are more um, oriented towards gifting. Um, but by and large, we're we're in this everyday category and I don't think we have a a big exposure to holiday or gifting. I do think the consumer, though, um, it'll be an interesting moment to see what happens in this holiday season, because I think the last, you know, the last holiday season was pretty good. Um, And so, you know, the other thing about with consumers, and I'm sure you see it as well, um, there's been a bit of a shift towards more um, uh, away from goods and products into services and experiences some of that revenge spend from COVID. And I think people, people aren't done with that yet. There's been too little joy in people's lives. And so if you can steal an evening at a concert or still go have a nice dinner with your family or, or go somewhere fun for a weekend, um, I still think that's a priority and people may be making choices on how they live their lives to still be able to do some of those things that bring them joy that we've all missed in the last two or three years. You mentioned a few questions ago that your team is fired up, which I think is not something I'm hearing a lot from other executives just because of all of the pressures, you know, whether it's inflation or coming out of COVID or, you know, mental health and working from home, you know, your leadership style, Rod, I think is very interesting because I mean, I'm reading your posts on LinkedIn. It does feel very empowered and impassioned. How are you keeping that momentum up? One of the things we focus on here at Edgewell is um, building a culture that's authentic and centers around people. And we have four values. And our leading value is people first. 
by the way, the, the, the team helped create the, the values um, and our purpose statement and our behavior set. And, and so this was a participative thing that we did together um, when I came in as CEO. Um, and when you start with saying your leading value is people first, then you have to act that way. You have to operate that way. If, if your words and actions don't match, people are going to call you out very quickly. And it doesn't mean sometimes that you're going to not have to make decisions that impact people negatively, right? It's business. And, and sometimes you have to face some tough discussions and some tough choices. But if you always do it from a point of respect and care and having empathy for people you work with in your team, and it's authentic, people are going to people are going to give you a chance. And sometimes even if you get things wrong, they're going to give you a second chance because they know you're well-intended. And so this people-first orientation that we have is, is a big driver that, that's new to the company. Um, I think people believe it. We've behaved consistently with that. As an example, when the pandemic started um, and we sent everyone from the office home, we couldn't send everyone from the, the manufacturing plants home. <laughs> we still needed to make product. Consumers needed our products. Wet Ones, for example, was one of those early products that we couldn't make enough of. And so our application of people first in that moment was to try to keep our people safe that had to go into the manufacturing plants. The idea is the manufacturing plant is as safe as anywhere in the world except for your home. That's the standard we're trying to work with. And so what you do is you remove bad incentives. So early days, a bad incentive is telling a manufacturing team that you're only getting paid if you come to work. Because what do they do? They come to work, even if they're sick. They come to work even if they're stressed out because they don't have care for their children who are now home from school. And maybe their kids are at home and they're coming to work with a mind that's not in the right place and they're not focused and they now have a safety issue and they hurt themselves, right? So our initial response was take away the bad incentive. And so we told our manufacturing teams they could stay home. We would still pay them if they had the virus, if they think they've been exposed to the virus, or if they just need some time to get their families sorted and deal with now having kids at home and trying to, to Zoom learn through school. And we paid them for 12 weeks and another two up to 14 weeks, even if they didn't come in. And so that was an example where we had to go overtime, we had to go get some temps to fill in, in the gaps that we had, but the loyalty we've had from our manufacturing team by just having their back when they needed it most has been amazing, right? Every time I go to one of our manufacturing plants now, it's not, it's not great every day, it's still tough work. And they're tired, right, like everybody, but they remember, like, we took care of them in the moment and we did it in a very authentic way. We didn't have to do it, it was a choice. And so we have examples like that around the company that we've just gotten more of those right than wrong. And people respond to that. You know if you're being respected and treating well or not. Everybody knows that. And so there's an authenticity, I think, around that. And then the other thing that matters is you've got to have success in market. It's back to where we started. We're, we're growing and winning market share more places than not. And so if you're a brand manager and you're looking at your share report come in every week, if you're up, you're good. You know, it's the ultimate scorecard. And if, if you're down, you're not. And so even if I'm saying things to try to rally the troops, if we're not winning in market, uh, 
it, it falls, you know, falls hollow. And so I think having that in-market success is beyond having good intent and treating people well, ultimately that in-market success is the thing that then rallies and propels you on, even if the environment's tough. Rod, it was so lovely talking to you. I feel like you have such a zen and calming voice. I mean, I could be here for a few more hours, but thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed having you. Likewise, Priya, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.